Council on Public Affairs. To begin with, please cut off your cell phone. Shut them off. It's embarrassing to interrupt the session with a cell phone. And also make sure that uh, you put $11 in the basket. $11. Uh, this is for lunch and uh, a buck for sakpa. Uh, today, we are lucky to have Jim Byrne, uh, Canada's prominent uh, environmentalist, uh, who happened to live in Lethbridge. We are lucky. And uh, last year, we experienced a political uh, landslide in different directions, and suddenly environment is no longer a uh, taboo subject as far as government is concerned. We can talk about the environment openly without uh, being inspected by CRA, Canadian Canada. <laughs> and uh, so we are in search of alternative source of energy, and Jim is advocating geothermal energy. Not only he advocates it, he practices it. So we are lucky to have Jim. And Jim, of course, is a professor of geography at the University of Lethbridge and a well-known environmentalist. So without wasting any time, I'd like to call upon Jim to speak about geothermal energy. Thanks, Tad. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for all coming out. Um, and and uh, I, I hope you enjoy what I have to say. And even if you don't, I hope you find it interesting and informative and, and even controversial. That's always kind of fun too, right? Um, so I, I'm looking at geothermal, a practical renewable energy option. And notice the question mark at the end of that. Um, so how do I come at this? Who the heck is Jim Byrne? Okay, well, I'm professor and past chair at the University of Lethbridge at the Department of Geography. I'm apprentice institute research affiliate at the University of Lethbridge. In the American Geophysical Union, I've chaired many sessions on climate, climate change, climate solutions, including a major international conference on behalf of AGO. I should say co-chaired, because I worked with other people, and they, they deserve the credit, although I didn't mention their names, so I'm really grabbing most of the credit anyway, right? And I do multidisciplinary research, mostly on climate science and solutions. Uh, some of you know that I also do some work in watersheds, but most of that is aimed at impacts of climate and climate change on watersheds, right? So those are, those are some of my important roles, but really my most important role is as Papa, as part of the team of Ama and Papa, uh, and these are our group of grandchildren with us that we enjoy immensely, uh, but these young folks make it somewhat personal. I'm still objective, but they make it personal. We have some things to do to make our society function better, and I'm sure a lot of you feel the same way. And aren't they cute? They got their looks, I'm sure, from Amma, right? Because she's just lovely. So today's discussion, the Alberta Climate Plan. I want to talk about that a little bit. How does geothermal energy fit into our renewable energy options? Because I'm talking about renewable energy today for the most part. Um, how can Canada and Alberta move forward on renewables? And then I'm trying to dust off or actually re rework the national energy policy. I think we need a new national energy policy and put that some darkness in our path. 
So Alberta Climate Leadership, what are we doing? Well, I'm admiring what they're doing so far. We're phasing out coal-fired electricity, and we know that that's a really great idea because of the environmental impacts, because of the health impacts, uh, right? And there's a group of, a wonderful group of, of colleagues that I work with, uh, Alberta doctors and Canadian doctors who are working on this and saying, we need a coal phase out soon because of the health impacts of that pollution. That's besides climate change. Developing more renewable energy. I like that, and I suspect that's at least part of why you're all here today. They put a carbon price on greenhouse gas emissions. That's a great idea. We needed that for a long time. My economics friends have said for years, I would say, you're not covering greenhouse gases and environmental effects on, on uh, uh, of, of carbon in all of your analysis. They said, great, I'll tell you how to cover it. Put a price on it. And that's what we've done now in Alberta. So Alberta's showing leadership. Uh, we put an oil sands emission limits on. That's good as well, I think, because we couldn't go on with rampant, uncontrolled developments in the oil sands. And we got a methane emission reduction plan. So where does that take us? Well, I can tell you, I've been talking about this with my colleagues at international meetings, uh, and my colleagues are saying, that's amazing. What Alberta's doing is amazing. This is not a partisan comment. This is a comment in my role as a professor in climate scientist. And, and uh, I can tell you that my science colleagues are looking at what Alberta is doing in terms of leadership on climate and saying, Alberta has gone from the rear of the pack to the front. And I'm very thrilled to have that happen. And I really think it's gonna do a lot of positive for our, our province, uh, you know, provincially, nationally, globally. But that's feedback from a lot of objective colleagues. Now, the old Alberta, Canada economic plan. I was not a big fan of this. I didn't think we were going down the right direction. I'm not saying that I you know, thought that we should never develop any oil sands, but the, the, the wild development we were going through, the uncontrolled development was not good, right? And we all know that it probably cost us some development. Um, the hard-nosed approach to developing oil sands and not, not ever covering our environmental footprint cost us dearly in terms of global, regional, national public relations, right? There's a lot of people don't like Alberta, don't like oil sands because of our hard-nosed approach. We didn't, get, we didn't go west with a pipeline. We're not going south with a pipeline. Should we really have lost this one on the scale of things? You know, that's open to debate. We lost it because of bad policy approaches. Um, you know. And now there's this one we're talking about, Trans-Canada East. Should we develop Trans-Canada East? Um, and that's a discussion that's probably gonna take place for a little while. I look at Trans-Canada East and say, okay, we still haven't covered any of our, meaningfully covered any of our environmental impact, our greenhouse gas emissions from oil sands, but we're saying, hey, back us up to go from two million barrels to three million barrels. There's gonna be a lot of cynicism looking at that kind of development plan when we haven't covered our butts, quite frankly. Right? So, <clears throat> because Stephen Harper and you know, uh, the former Premier Prentice never called me very often to talk, um, you know, I thought maybe I could, should write some op-eds and see if they would listen that way. And so early last spring, 
Paul Hasendonk and I, my colleague at University of Lethbridge, we authored this op-ed that was published in the Edmonton Journal. It's something that I'm doing more and more of, publishing op-eds in national and international papers where I can. It's a tough road to hoe because lots of people want to publish in these things. But this was about a long-term strategy, a safe, clean strategy for energy development for Alberta. And it didn't say that we have to shut down our oil sands. It said, let's protect the development we have. How do we protect the development we have? We start to buy some good grace in the international and national community by covering our greenhouse gas and environmental footprint from the oil sands, right? And so that's, that's what I was arguing. Now, don't worry, I'm getting to geothermal, just setting a context here. We'll, we'll get to geothermal pretty soon, okay? So we've got to cover our Alberta greenhouse gas footprint. <coughs> now, here we are, here's geothermal. If you Google geothermal, right, Google University, <coughs> you start to see images like this, right? And that doesn't look much like Alberta. Okay, you get a little closer, this is a hot spring in Yellowstone National Park, right? So if we, we could go into Yellowstone and there's one huge geothermal development, although some people would feel that kind of development in a national park might not be appropriate, right? Um, but we have people, groups, countries like Iceland, and we were talking about it at the table for a moment before I came up here, Iceland has lots of geothermal. But Icelanders live with volcanoes in the backyard and not everybody likes to live. We don't have any volcanoes in our backyard, and I suspect most of you are kind of pleased about that, right, overall. Um, volcanoes in the backyard, the closest one is the Yellowstone Caldera, and some of my students just made a presentation on that last night in class. Actually, that is the biggest caldera in the world, and hasn't blown for about 600,000 years, but if it goes, wow, we're gonna know about it, okay? So that's probably as close as we wanna have a big caldera. Okay, so anyway, I don't want volcanoes in my backyard. They've got a volcano in the backyard because they live, Icelanders live on the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, a plate boundary, plate tectonics, right? New Zealanders have lots of geothermal energy, and that's, you know, this is one of their geothermal energy plants in New Zealand, and guess what? They live on the Pacific Ring of Fire. Lots of tectonic activity, lots of energy near the surface. You can boil a whole lot of water with the Pacific Ring of Fire, and that generates a whole lot of electricity, right? So, you know, if you live really near a plate boundary, you've got loads of, you know, A-base, A-quality geothermal electricity that you can develop. Our friends out on the lower mainland of British Columbia and all along the British Columbia coast, they live with great risk of, of earthquakes, and there's probably lots of geothermal they can discover out there. <coughs> but how about on, on right now, you know, what are we all developing so far? This is geothermal projects in Canada to date. All of these projects are really in the development testing phase. There isn't really any significant electrical or energy development going on so far. And I don't see that happening in the, in the near future. But let's, let's explore why. And to do that, we got to look at how does geothermal energy work. How's the pace? You guys like the pace so far? Am I going about the right speed? Okay. Okay, so how does geothermal energy work? Well, simplest, here's, a, here's an image of, of a geothermal baseload electricity plant. We need hot rocks, okay? Just interpret that literally. That's the only way you should interpret that, right? We need hot rocks to make geothermal energy. We need rocks that are hot enough to boil water. 
And what we do is we have an injection well and a production well. And you eject, inject cold water down in through the injection well, you pump it up and bring it out through the, through the production well, and that brings lots of heat to the surface, that boils water, that runs steam turbines. That's kind of what we could call A-based geothermal. And if you've got some good hot rocks underneath you, you can produce lots of geothermal. Okay? Good hot rocks is the operative phrase, right? So <coughs> here's Canadian Geothermal Energy Association uh, is doing lots of work on this. I was in contact with them this week, talked to them about, you know, the potential for Alberta and BC. Uh, and they've got some maps they've produced, and you can all go have a look at these if you want on Google Earth. They've, they've put them there so everybody can see them. And this is their view of the potential right now uh, for deep geothermal, uh, and we're looking for water temperatures that are greater, than, or ground temperatures that are greater than 100 degrees Celsius, right? So we can produce geothermal energy easily and effectively. And really the only places in Alberta right now that kind of have some promise are up there. So that's, you know, something we should consider. I never say never. So consider everything. But obviously, there's not a whole lot of people living near there who want electricity, and there's not a, you know, the cost of building transmission lines from there would be significant. Now, there's probably, this, this, is, this is very elementary data, needs a lot more exploration, and we should do that. Maybe there's some sites closer. The only other site that looks close is close to, you know, that looks like it might have some, some practicality is right near Jasper National Park, I think a little north of the park, so maybe there could be some development there. But again, we have to hook it into the grid, right? It's, it's, uh, so it's a challenge for that, for that A base. <coughs> so temperatures over 100 degrees in Alberta for geothermal energy, our options are modest at best right now. Somebody at University of Lethbridge, any time now, I'm sure we'll come up with a new technology that will create unlimited power with very limited geothermal. Great. If we do that, that would be fantastic. But until that new technology hits, this is, you know, we're stuck with modest capability at best, right? But don't lose hope. We can produce geothermal energy, depending upon what we want to use it for. We can produce geothermal energy from something we call two-stage or binary production. Uh, if we went back to that map that I had a moment ago, there's lots of water deep under, southern, under Alberta that's at temperatures of 40, 50, 60 degrees Celsius. Uh, so we can look at mining that water, and we can use the two-stage process in a couple of ways. We can take that hot water, add a second energy source, like natural gas, heat it up to boiling, run it through a turbine and generate electricity. Now the catch there is that second energy source, right? Now we're kind of starting to lose some efficiencies if we're looking to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and be renewable. Um, we can also use a second liquid in the two-stage process. And the second liquid is a liquid that boils at much lower temperatures. Therefore, you bring up the hot water, you heat up that liquid to its boiling point, there you get a vapor, you get high pressure, and you can run a turbine with that, right? So that's, that's a, an, an option um, for geothermal over a wider part of Alberta. But, you know, it requires either that second energy source or a, a second 
a second liquid. Now, they've said, you know, where they're doing, where they're doing some, some binary production around the world, they use isobutane because it has a much lower um, boiling point, but isobutane is also quite a toxic material. So if you get leaks or problems like that, then maybe, you know, that, that's not something people would want near you. Uh, Southern Alberta, Lethbridge has definitely got some NIMBY syndrome. We all got together and said, don't frack in our backyard. Uh, and there's no fracking going on in our backyard. And we were world famous. People around the world were following what Lethbridge did to stop hydraulic fracturing within the city limits. Uh, but it was still a NIMBY thing. We still, it was not in my backyard. So I'm not sure too many of us would be any keener on having a two-phase um, geothermal plant using isopropane uh, uh, in our in the um, isobutane, sorry, in our in our in the plant. So, but it's still an option, right? There is a geothermal binary electric production plant in Williston, in Williston Basin near Estevan, Saskatchewan. It's planned to be about a forty million dollar commercial project. It will provide baseload electricity. That's a beauty. I'll, I'll come back to that again in just in my summary, but provides baseload electricity. It'll produce, and it'll produce about 40,000 megawatt hours of electricity every year, planning for 2017. So then that's something we need, right, is stable electricity. We don't want the lights to go up and down or the microphone to go on and off during my presentation. Well, may maybe some of you do want that, but I prefer that we actually have the electricity work, right? And you can hear everything that I have to say. Um, but, <coughs> you know, I got a colleague in the room and we can, we can sit down and run the numbers for you pretty quickly and we can tell you that 600 or 133 meter high wind turbine towers that would cost approaching $40 million will produce 90,000 megawatt hours of electricity in a year. So geothermal is, is not as cost effective as some other options, but it gives us, it might still need to be in the mix because those wind turbines don't always blow. We were just looking at, at Megawatts Alberta at the table again and you know, noticing that we're producing about 1,200 megawatts, about 1.2 gigawatts of electricity by wind today. Wind capacity in Alberta is running at about 90% today. That's great. But we also know occasionally we go outside and the wind's just not blowing at all, right? And so we will need some, some base load to help us cover that. And maybe geothermal will do that. So the pros of, of big scale geothermal. Clean, safe, usually very few or no, no greenhouse gas emissions. Right? Low operating cost and a good steady base flow energy supply. And that's something we need. The cons, it's really expensive. Um, it's got very limited geographic extent, and we don't have a lot of potential here in Alberta. Maybe that changes, and I'm open to, you know, I would love to see them say, let's, let's have, you know, the right research team working on how we can make it more effective in Alberta with the ground heat we have, with the deep ground heat we have. But for now, not that effective. The most effective places are far from consumers. Therefore, you know, we're going to have some problems with just getting the energy to consumers. We can also occasionally, geothermal's been accused of releasing harmful gases, both from geologic formations, uh, and if you've got a two-phase that's using a second liquid, you could have some harmful emissions there. So, you know, uh, those are concerns. And last but not least, there have been modest, you know, 
some reports of earthquakes in and around geothermal operations. Many of those geothermal operations were already in tectonically active regions, so, you know, is it a major concern? We do know the science is becoming very clear. For example, in, in hydraulic fracturing, we're causing a lot of earthquakes. So if we're going to mess in the earth in a big way, you know, we should expect that something's going to come back at us. So that's, that's certainly something to at least consider. So <clears throat> another question I get asked is what about all these abandoned oil and gas wells? Are they a source of geothermal energy? Well, all we have to do is expand our minds a little bit or expand our perspective and say, okay, how can we use this geothermal energy? And I kind of like this concept. And I think that we should consider, yeah, maybe this is geothermal energy. You know, just open up our minds and say the only, our only use for geothermal energy is not boil water. Is there other ways we can use geothermal energy? You betcha. Uh, you know, we can, we can go at back at this with two-stage binary production, right? And that will give us electrical production. <coughs> and it is close. These, these holes are all close to consumers. There, there's many, many of these holes. If you could see this, the scale on this, uh, and probably a lot of you can't, but there's a lot of, of abandoned and operating oil and gas wells in Alberta, right? Tens of thousands of oil and gas wells operating in Alberta. And we know that the temperatures at the bottom of those holes are, are pretty warm. So if we're going to do that, we need pilot projects. Because, again, if, if uh, we've got a whole bunch of, of uh, oil and gas wells in the city of Lethbridge, great. We can probably build a plant and encompass the heat that we get from all of them and use that heat in some way. But the further they're spread, the wider apart, then geographically they become less effective, right, in terms of any kind of, of advantage to society. But I'll tell you a use for ground-based heat from all of those oil and gas wells. How many of you have been complaining about the price of cauliflower? Okay. Um, I think if we still have to pay this price for cauliflower, and we should pay this price for cauliflower in winter anyway, and we should be willing to pay for good vegetables and pay a very good price, but you know what? I'd rather buy them off Albertans, produced in Albertan, in Albertan greenhouses, run with Alberta geothermal energy, and we should have a massive greenhouse, uh, greenhouse gas, we should have a massive greenhouse industry in Alberta. So that's my cauliflower pitch, or some call it the cauliflower caper. Right, so let's, let's do that. We really need to look at that because, because we can also des design these greenhouses. I was sad to see a gentleman from the Medicine Hat area say that the NDP policies or the government policies are going to hurt my greenhouse. I'm going to have to shut it down. Yeah, sir, with complete respect, you're operating a greenhouse which is very old and uses a whole lot of energy. We can redesign that industry now. And that might be some of the places we should spend our greenhouse gas, you know, our greenhouse gas uh, tax, right? Uh, to look at redesigning a lot of our food system and growing a lot more food locally, supporting that industry. And instead of letting it shut down, let's keep it going. Let's make it way more efficient. Because with some of this geothermal energy and better designed greenhouses, we can grow a heck of a lot more of our own food. So that's something I look forward to doing. Not me personally, but you know. <coughs> okay. How are we doing for time, Kat? Lots of time here? Eight minutes left? Woo!
macro. Okay, geothermal, ground-based heat pumps. We can do this too. This is my house. Some of you have heard of this before, okay? This is my greenhouse gas. I'm gonna tell you about my greenhouse gas uh, footprint from my house. I have ground-based heat pump in this house. And so, and I buy green electricity from Spark Electricity. So what's my greenhouse gas footprint like? Well, if you, you, most of you have probably done that. You're here, so you care enough to have looked, right? You can go on the web and find your, calculate your greenhouse gas footprint. This is the greenhouse gas footprint for Leanne and I, right? Our house, now that it's running on geo, well, our house is, our electricity, about 11, almost 12 tons of CO2. Flights, because we go to a conference every year and like to go away for a vacation, uh, you know, about 0.64 tons of, of, of greenhouse gases. Our cars, they're efficient. They use about five and a half tons of greenhouse gases every year. The motorcycle, Leanne said, you go ahead and have fun on that. So I, I understand uh, you know, when someone's saying maybe you better not buy that. So there is no motorcycle in our household. Notice the tons, 0.00 of emissions from my motorcycle. Bus and rail and secondary. So our greenhouse gas footprint, according to the website, comes out about 20 tons for two people. But actually, we buy green electricity. So that wipes out my house greenhouse gas for electricity. And I don't have a natural gas bill because I got geothermal. So in actual fact, for two of us, our greenhouse gas footprint is a little over eight tons. So we're down to four tons. So we took Rick Mercer's one ton challenge from 10 years ago and, and really took it way beyond. In fact, on average, the average Albertan would have a greenhouse gas footprint of about 25 tons, not counting our oil and gas, because if you look at our oil and gas emissions, the average Albertan has a greenhouse gas footprint of about 70 tons per year. Way, way above the global average, right? And even way above the, the average for Canada and for the United States. Average Canadian U.S. citizen about 24, 25 tons. So we're down to four, right, each. So we're doing okay. And we're making money, right? So how are we going to do this? We're going to do more things with Renewable Energy Cooperative. That's more visible for you than it is for me on this screen. I want to start some Renewable Energy Cooperatives. I'm always after your money. I am. I want you to come and spend your money with me, all right? I want to create Renewable Energy Cooperatives, but we want to make money for all of us with those renewable energy cooperatives, right? I'm not a big fan of you putting solar panels on your roof at home. Not unless we can prove you've got a great roof to do that. Let's build a cooperative instead and put the panels where they can generate a heck of a lot more electricity and generate a lot more income for you. That's what an energy cooperative is about. But on these energy cooperatives, energy cooperatives, they can share solar photovoltaics. We can share ground-based heat, geothermal. You know, the, the geothermal people prefer we call it ground-based heat pumps, and they're right. We can share those things. We have no natural gas bill. We have a very limited electrical bill because we generate most of our own electricity. We generate most of our own heat with ground-based heat pumps and, and exchange, and it's a lot cheaper to do it as a cooperative. My house was pretty expensive. It still pays for itself, but my house was pretty expensive to do it. I felt like if I'm going to pontificate at you about these types of things, I should have walked the talk, right? And I, and I have. And this is, this is the best part. We'll take outside investors too. Somebody wants to put in a megawatt of electricity, we'll put it in one of the cooperatives and we'll all benefit from it and they'll get paid back just like every, every other investor. So there's lots of advantages with the Renewable Energy Co-op. We use ground-based heat pumps. We directional drilling. Thank you, oil and gas, and particularly frackers. You develop directional drilling to the point where, hey, those guys can drill right up 
you know, to your house and deliver a hot water pipe and a pipe to take it away so that we can send you hot and cold water even in an old neighborhood, right? So we're going to put in these neighborhood solar co-ops. We're going to put some batteries in your house so we manage the demand as well. You know, we really need to manage our electrical demand. Our system right now is very inefficient because it just meets whatever demand we want, right? And that's just inefficient and ineffective. It takes all of the environmental pressure off of the consumer. <coughs> so if you want to go green in your neighborhood, let's talk. Right? Now, I'm part of this national group acting on climate change, um, Canada Sustainable Dialogues. And we said that we need a national coal phase-out program. And here's the national coal phase-out program. Canada has all kinds of wind energy right there. Great potential. Right? Let's do more of this. Canada has all kinds of solar energy potential right there. Let's do that. Let's invest in southern Alberta. We can put in more of those. The national energy program, BC has all kinds of hydro. Manitoba has all kinds of hydro. Quebec has all kinds of hydro. Newfoundland has all kinds of hydro. The thing that's missing that was pointed out by 70 scholars from across Canada, whoops, how do I go back? The thing that's missing is all of that renewable development in southern Alberta to, to close this grid and make it, make it work really well. So, Mr. Prime Minister, you're looking for a way to help Alberta. Somebody's saying that's Energy East. Let's have that discussion. But you know what's not even on the table is what's going on, what should be going on in southern Alberta. And all of those people who aren't working in oil fields anymore, University of Lethbridge or Lethbridge College would love to train them to do new things, right? To do more progressive things. I know we all use oil and gas. I'm not trying to hurt anybody's feelings. We need to do the more progressive thing now, though. We need to cover our butts on greenhouse gas emissions. And Mr. Prime Minister, that part that's circled there is what's missing. That's where we need to start to spend some money to fill in that gap and get rid of coal and make a national energy program which provides electricity to all of us without coal-fired electricity. And it is eminently, absolutely doable and it will pay for itself. Okay? So in summary, geothermal is probably going to be a component of our future electrical system. But we need to do a lot more work to determine how much of that component, uh, you know, how much of a component that will be. Ground-based heat exchange geothermal, if you like, will probably be a very substantial part in the long term. I was going to throw in, but I knew I didn't have time, I was going to throw in Okotoks. Okotoks has a really cool you know, heat storage system in, in, in one of their neighborhoods. Um, Canada needs a national renewable energy network as soon as possible. Uh, Southern Alberta is by far the best place for wind and solar investments, and we should be growing leaps and bounds and we should be a major part of the new national energy policy, which hopefully will erase a lot of that grumpiness from the 70s and early 80s about national energy policies. And I made it through, I think, right on time. Thank you very much. I look forward to talking to you more. Thank you.